0: <laughs> All right. So Raul,
1: we've gotten the um the start. Got quite a group now uh, for uh, Friday night Sangha. Uh, Robert was just on with Sharon and, and uh they're on the way to someplace and so uh, they checked in. But anyway, um Raul, you've got a question about the triple gym which basically boils down to how can we take refuge in the Buddha when we don't have a Buddha? But you could ask the same question, how can you take refuge in the Sangha when there is no Sangha? And how can you take refuge in the Dhamma when we don't understand the Dhamma correctly? So it's a question in all three ways. And the the answer to that would be that <clears throat> while it may be problematic about gaining the, uh, the Buddha, that it's the least problematic for the Dhamma. We would go, uh, in fact, I have said this before, and that is an, on a scale from one to ten, with Western Buddhism, for each of the triple gems, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, that Western Buddhism is about a three or a four for uh, the Dhamma. There are about a one or a two at the Buddha and that there's zero at the Sangha. The word Sangha is the one that's the most missing. And that uh, we can say, all right, well, let's go back and say um, that to take refuge in the Buddha, you need a Buddha. Well, the answer to that is, is that, well, Western Buddhism has already decided that, in fact, it's an old story. I've heard this, heard this so many years ago, and it's been repeated so often. And I was wondering if any of you guys have heard this same thing, that there hasn't been any fully enlightened beings for centuries. Have you ever heard that kind of thing before? Yep.
2: Yeah. Well, right. Yeah, Yeah, but well, I've also heard other ways. I'm
1: sorry, Eric, what?
2: Yes, but I've also heard otherwise.
1: Yes, exactly. We're about to hear a whole lot of otherwise. <laughs> but that that's the mentality, though, that if we say that there has been no enlightened beings for a long, long time, then that lowers each individual's odds of being able to gain that now. But if, in fact, there are tens of thousands or more of fully enlightened beings on the planet Earth right now, that raises your particular odds now, doesn't it? Yeah, you'd think so. And that uh, this is actually a part of where the lineage comes in. Now, one of the distinctions... Then, in fact, there's a sutta, okay? It's number 108, and it has to do with uh, Ananda coming out of uh, the first conference right after the Buddha died, and he's on Vendabad and gets into a conversation with a Brahmin that is asking, where the Brahmin is asking the question of what is the difference between your newly deceased? Uh, uh, Sakyamuni, the Buddha, and uh, the rest of you guys. And Ananda was quite clear with him there that the only distinction is is that the Buddha found the path. He found it. He reestablished it or he found a path that was already there pre-existing. And that once that uh, path is taught and taught correctly, those who follow that path then are the same. They're the Buddha. There is no distinction between the Buddha himself and someone who correctly follows the path. That's uh, part of the sutra training. So if we understand it like that, then we can say that all... Perhaps this Buddha thing that we are supposed to find refuge in is not non-existent. That in fact, if it is non-existent and hasn't been in existence for the past several hundred years, it's not possible to take refuge in there. But if in fact they do, you could say that that that's the shining example on the hill. Is, is that we can, in fact, have light because we know that it has been done before and it has been done since then and it continues to be done. That, in fact, the uh, the slowly learned information about Bhikkhu Buddha's life, uh, Buddha Das's life, happened <clears throat> in a way that gave me even more confidence in him as much confidence as that I had in Bhikkhu Buddhadasa from from the very beginning when I learned some of the history of it and recognized that he was not on his own that he was in fact um, because of uh, let us say some um, public talks that he gave that helped through serendipity for him to be uh, brought in and established into the noble Sangha that already secretly existed in Southeast Asia and in Thailand. That the problem with it is not that it is um, non-existent. It's that those who have it have been kind of secretly maintaining it. But that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's position now is is that the time for secrecy that lasted for hundreds of years. You can in fact see the secrecy that got started uh, with the destruction of Buddhism in India. Because uh, the actual real teachings, the real Dharma of the Buddha can royally kick some people off. Why? Because they can't make a profit off of people Who they used to make profit off of because they could lie to them and get them to believe things and make donations or buy equipment or whatnot like that. And the real teachings of the Buddha then is uh, that we don't need any of that stuff. And so the, uh, the actual teachings of the Buddha then kind of got secretized and remained that way. But it did not die out. But now through the work with uh, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa and many others in the Thai tradition, it wasn't like that he became uh, the only shining star on the hill. That, uh, that the, the beauty is, is that many of the most famous monks, not just in Thailand, but all over the world, collected around and supported and agreed with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, and so uh we have people like the Dalai Lama, which we just published recently. Okay. If the Dalai Lama holds Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa as a senior elder uh monk, then then that's kind of the story of the way that we we treat them. Um uh, we don't go right out and say, oh, he is enlightened or he is my number one teacher or whatever, but the uh, the way that um uh, the Dalai Lama phrased it was, is that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is his senior or his elder brother. Uh, and that that happened in many, many ways. Also, Tetnahan had that relationship with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, as well as many other very, very famous and well-known monks in Thailand, including Achan Cha. But I met Achan Cha at Wat suan Mok. I met Ajahn Sumedho at Wat Suan Mok. So that shows that kind of connection. Uh, yes, Anuli? Um, did
3: um hat was like friends with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasha? Pardon? Uh Did uh, was Thich, Nang Han, Thich Nang Han friends with Bhikkhu
1: I'm not really sure of that relationship because I'm not familiar with it, but I am very familiar or not very familiar, but I'm somewhat familiar with the relationship that he had with the Dalai Lama. But I do know that there were monks that were associated with um, uh, Titnahan that did visit Wat Mok. Whether or not um, there was any correspondence or whatnot like that, I'm not sure of. But it is fairly clear that uh, there is some sort of dhammic connection between uh, Titnahan and Bhikkhu Buddhadasa because their teachings are so similar. Uh, and so um, others that I would mention would be, uh, in fact, probably the star of the show would be, uh, you guys have never heard of him. His name is um, Achan uh, Panyananda. And Achan Panyananda was, uh, he's probably dead now. The last time I saw him, he was 98, and that was in 2002. So I'm not sure whether he's made it since then or not. But he was the, at that time, still the abbot of the largest wat in Thailand. Wat Chulapatan in Nonthaburi, with a couple of thousand monks, all of them more or less dedicated to the practice of the Dhamma uh according to bhikkhu buddhadasa in fact it was when i was in india living at uh what uh, uh, uh thai what thai Bodhgaya is actually the name of the one and um i met a, a monk there who was from wat Chulapatan, who strongly recommended i mean forcefully recommended that i go to thailand and and meet with bhikkhu buddhadasa Later, I met that same monk back at Wat Chulipatan when I was a monk, and that was a very big celebration moment for him. that his that that his insistence when I was in India to go to Thailand, and I actually went and became a monk, and now I'm visiting back at his watch. So those kind of connections are there. this is this is where, that it has come from me. Now, whether or not I can pass that down to you or not, that you can see where I hold that refuge. That I've got that, that um, let us say, uh, enthusiasm. Maybe you could use words like dedication or devotion or all in, uh, because I do have or have that refuge for the Buddha through the lineage with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and all of the monks that I have such great respect for. Okay, So that means then that if I'm going to be bringing the Dhamma to you guys, that I have to do it with the kind of standard so that you can see that um, there is something there that is worth taking refuge in. In other words, there is that shining star on the hill for you that you can do it. That's the part that is so hard that uh, in Western Buddhism, with the mentality of, we got no Buddhas. How can we take refuge in the Buddhas? Maybe we can practice and I can do it. But when you have that refuge because you know that you've been around, senior elder monks who uh, express and live the life of nobility. So that's that's an important point, and that's kind of missing in the West. We kind of substitute that with the famous Dhamma teachers that are around. But the there, there's an there's a side issue that I'll go into in, in a moment um, about that. Yes. He's Sean.
4: Uh, I would say, like, also, when you make friends in the Dama, certain individuals could have that impact, too. Like, I see Don Rado is, you know, here, and he teaches, you know, you guys. And then I go along into the woods with Eric, and I see what a great job. Don Rado is done with Eric. So it's even more confidence than at that point on top of that, you know.
1: Yes, that's an important point. That's getting, in fact, right into the issue of the Sangha. Okay. So the first thing is, is taking refuge in the Buddha because you do have that kind of experience with noble people who do have something that is worth having. That's the important point. Okay. That, In other words, you've got a, an example. You can see it. This happens actually in many places within education or that the uh, the young junior executive is mentored by the CEO or that a particular uh, student in the university will latch on to a particular professor and really hold dear to him. That actually happened to me at one point. But the funny part was is that it was not a computer uh, science professor that I latched on to. It was a physics professor. <laughs> and here's my love for physics was because of my association and my love for and attachment to and dedication to Dr. Sapko, who was actually quite a famous physicist at that time. So this is what we're talking about is, is that that connection that we make where we can trust that what this person has to say is worth listening to and worth practicing and developing as a skill. An example of that is like with music. If you cannot hear another musician play a particular piece of music and all you have is the sheet music, You've got very, very little chance until you've gotten quite a lot of skill. In fact, there's an old story about Franz Liszt that um, uh, Edward Gregg put his piano concerto uh, on the piano where he was. Uh, I be, Franz Liszt was kind of giving a um, uh, a small performance, what they call uh, chamber music. And uh, uh, Edward Gregg walked into there with his piano concerto. And asked Franz Liszt to play it. He is sight reading a major piece of music, and there was one. The story is is that there was one time when Franz Liszt stopped in the middle of it to question what was the thing there. And the story was is that he just wanted to take the time so that he could review the stuff in advance, so that he could continue to play it by sight. That's how good Franz Liszt, I mean, that's the story. He was like the best musician in the world, and this is one of the stories about how excellent he was um, with sight reading. Because all of us, we can't take a piece of sheet music from a major piece of work like that and just sit down and play it. No, we have to hear it over and over and over and over again. This is the way of the Dhamma. We have to hear things over and over and over again. So part of the teachings of the Buddha then is that the Buddha's style is, is that he repeats the same things over and over and over and over again. And there's quite a lot of consistency through the suttas, that there are several interesting themes that keep running and running and running through there. And one of them, in fact, we had a conversation on the dialogues or the comments in the YouTube about where did the Buddha actually say that he only teaches one thing, and that is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Well, guess what? That actual phrase is sprinkled out a number of suttas. It's all over the place. That this, this is the kind of stuff that we say over and over and over again, which is now that repetitive nature that we're talking about, is taking the refuge itself. That taking refuge means that you keep going back and keep going back and keep taking the refuge, keep going back to it. In fact, you can think of the refuge as kind of like a harbor for ships, Do you know that the that all that the whole point of a ship is to be at sea, right? And yet most ships spend most of their time in port, in harbor. That's where they spend about half their time or most of the time. They spend it, they keep coming back. Yeah, they're out at sea, but where are they going? They're going to a port. They're going to a harbor. And so we can think of it like that also, that we just kind of uh, go out into the world like we go out to sea, but immediately we want to find a refuge, to find a safe port, to find harbor. And this is what the refuge is all about. And so we keep coming back to it over and over and over again. This is the quality of the Dhamma, and this is also the quality of practice, but we do that with every skill. A four-year-old is going to stand in the yard while daddy throws a softball and he's going to miss it several times and then he's going to find to be able to catch the ball. But that four-year-old is now not a star first baseman. There's a whole lot of practice that has to go on. And as he catches more and more balls, he becomes more and more skilled at catching baseballs. This is exactly the way that we practice the Dama. Is, is that once we learn one time how to catch Stuka, now we're going to get skilled at being able to catch it over and over and over again, rather than getting hit in the face with the ball. We're going to catch it. And that's the skill. And guess what? Out in the world of, uh, let us say, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, that there's a lot of curveballs. There's a lot of really interesting things, and so we need to have those skills built up <laughs> so that we can catch, get a load of whatever is happening. And so this is the quality then of taking the refuge in the Dhamma and that we we also have to trust it. So the Buddha is the guy who can exhibit the Dhamma and show you the Dhamma over and over again in his own life so that you can practice that too over and over and over again. So you use the Buddha to practice the Dhamma, and if we don't have any examples, then there's no place to go. That's like reading Dhamma out of a book. It's very, very much like making a fire by reading a book from the Boy Scouts. You can't make a fire by reading a book. If you want to make a fire with a book, tear the pages out, take them into tiny little pieces and then put some sparks on it to get it, get a fire. So there's generally, that's the problem is, is there's generally no Buddhas in books. That's the problem. No Buddhas in books. And not only that, but the guys who write the books, why do people write books? That's the thing that's really interesting about Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is who said he didn't write much. He just talked like we're having just a regular conversation like we have now. That's the way that he worked. He did do some writing, but not much compared, I would say, maybe one or two percent of all the stuff that he has done was in him writing it out. He did some poems. He did a few things like that. But most of it was just sitting and talking with people. And so this is the way that we practice the Dharma, with just a small group, just one-on-one, just sharing and saying basically the same things over and over and over and over again. And so now we come to the next point, which is the Sangha, because that's when all of the guys who are taking refuge in the Buddha and taking refuge in the Dharma, they come together to take refuge among one another. That this is the the Sangha, the Buddha Sangha that that was established from day one was um, very convenient during those days. Now the life and the the activities of the modern monks is not very easily accepted in today's society, partly because of the fact that the young men and women have been so deeply indoctrinated into capitalism that they they weren't when they were uh, back, Uh, 2,500 years ago, that there were no regular jobs back then. There was no regular salaries back then. And that uh, there was also not that work ethos of if you don't work, you don't eat. None of that kind of stuff had been established in the time of the Buddha. And so it was actually um, a fairly easy thing for guys to do is to say, oh, well, why should I hang out in the village and have all this trouble when I can go hang out in the woods with all those happy old dudes? (laughs) And so that was basically what was going on is, is that the Buddha designed and developed the Sangha to make
0: life really easy. To make life really, really comfortable. Just hanging
1: out. Just um, traveling around with uh, no uh, much worries about where you slept or uh, what happened because you've got a strong mind. You can handle small discomforts and take care of things. You've got the robe that'll keep you warm. In fact, there was one time when the Buddha, um, there was a question about is the robe adequate for the kind of winter that they had in that area of uh, India, which is basically the same thing that it is here in Thailand. And the answer to that is, yes, the double robe is enough bedding. It's enough cover. You can get over it and uh, get under it and, and be comfortable in this kind of weather. That's not true in Chicago. That's not true in Minneapolis. There we need more, but in the place and the time of the Buddha, just the kind of stuff that you could carry around was all the stuff that you needed to manage your whole life. And so people were actually able to make it very, very easy. So you could say that the climate that you live in has a lot to determine as to how difficult your life is. The colder or the hotter it is, the more difficult life is. But when you live in uh, in the tropics in a um, especially uh, where there's a lot of good wind and and whatnot, so that the weather is pleasant much of the time, that allows you to live a very easy life. Very, very easy, comfortable, got no place to go and nothing to do and not worry about anything. And so these guys were able to collect together and and have, let us say, a, a band of merry men. But it was not the kind of band of merry men like Robin Hood had because those uh, guys had enemies. The sheriff of Nottingham and, and uh, uh, Prince John and all of those were, were enemies, and these guys were considered thieves, to where in the time of the Buddha, his band of merry men actually were supported by the kings in the area. In the east, there was King Pasenadi, and in the west, there was King Bimbisara. And King Bimbisara and his lineage eventually gave us uh, a, a soak, about 150 years after the time of the Buddha. And until that time, that Sangha was just that collection of merry men sitting around in the uh, uh, the forest with nothing to do but to teach other each other how to be happy and easygoing. <laughs> and so this is what's missing in the West because the Buddhism that has come to the West has come to us with uh, a lot of competition, yes, Anu. A- uh, Annie Lou, that's sorry, I've been saying your name wrong. Annie Lou. Oh, it's
3: okay. Um, I have a question: In the Buddha's original sangha, were there women? Because I know, like Ananda, asked him if he could teach uh, some women who I think were the Buddha's family, and eventually he agreed. But there were this were this uh, at some point where this were this like the sangha was like with women too, or was it always just guys?
1: Well, the first thing is is that we can look at the the situation and the texture of the situation in the time of the Buddha. In the time of the Buddha, there were some social things already that lines of um, Uh, let us say, the way that women should be behaving and the way that men should be behaving was already set up in that culture, just like it is in modern times. That, in fact, in in the most modern times, let us say in the past 50 years, that the inequality between men and women has become, let us say, a hot topic of uh, public conversation and public discourse. And in the time of the Buddha, that had not happened. And that, uh, it wasn't so much, so much a, a difference between men being better than women, but rather that it was that men had a kind of a role that in fact, in today's
0: world, you can see that, um, Men, most of the,
1: many ways to talk about it. Most of the students that I have are men. Why is it that men get all broken hearted and
0: crippled over their life and go looking for refuge? Why is it that women seem to tough it out and do what they're told? And on that regard, congratulations for you
1: for not toughing it out and doing what you're told, that you're actually looking for a way out of that kind of stuff. And so that's the one thing that we can look at is is that it has to do not with biological differences, but really social differences between men and women.
3: For example, here in Mexico, all the only retreats I've been in Mexico are like the Goenka retreats. And there's, also, there's always a lot of women. And the, the spaces for the women, they go, like, in five minutes, there's no more spaces. So there's, like, more women. But I think that has to do more with that uh, men work all the time, or I don't know. But I guess, like, what's really in my mind is I cannot help but uh, sometimes there are very unwholesome things that arise in my mind, like a, a bit of resentment. Or maybe like jealousy, like oh I want to go to a what in Thailand and not investigate, and there's only one place in Bangkok. Uh, but there's a lot of other what I could go if I were a man, and I don't care about being a, a woman or a man, like I just want the teachings. So I have like a bit of resentment towards uh-huh. that.
1: Well, here's the thing about that, that when the West goes to the east you have probably heard it i think that it was mark, mark twain who said it but it might have been horace greeley but in case any case 100 or 50 years ago or so guys were saying things like east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet Now, what does that mean is is that the Eastern way of mentality of doing things is different than the West. And when the West goes East, it may take them years to figure out because when when Westerners go to Asia, we go with our Western mentality. We expect that the world in Asia to be exactly the way that the world is in Thailand, or excuse me, in, in the West. And it, it it's actually taken me many years to figure out that there's quite a difference between the two. So here's one of the examples, then, is, is that Westerners come, let us say Western women come, and they see that the monks who are dressed in orange robes have a very, very high status. And the women are not allowed to be monks and take on the robes but that there are um, uh, other things like mechi. Well, the word mechi actually uh, does not necessarily have to be a woman, though that seems to be the way that it's worked out altogether. But basically, there's various different ways of taking precepts. There is the five preceptor, the eight preceptor, the ten preceptor. And that the, the clothing that the women wear, the natives in Tainan, it has a variety to it. Some of them are dre- uh, wear only white. Some of them wear white trousers. Others of them wear, wear long white skirts. Some of them also make a mixture of black and white to wear the, the skirt or the trousers are black and the shirt is white. Some of them shave their heads. Some of them don't. So, in a way, you could say that the women in Thailand, the Sangha of women in Thailand has a whole lot more variety and a whole lot more possibilities than the uh, than the male sangha. This seems to be pretty stuffy. Also, this, uh, this the, the Thai society is matriarchal. Buddhist societies tend to become matriarchal. Why? Because the guys are all doing their Dhamma thing, leaving the household and all the uh, the business and everything to the women. But that's not necessarily 100% of the case. But uh, in those places where that is the case, the uh, let us say it like this. The temple itself is not run by the monks. The monks are all guests at a particular wat. That's just their home. That's just where they live. They don't run the place. Even the abbot is not the abbot of the wat. He's the abbot of the monks in the Watt. There's a difference. The Watt itself is run by generally a board or a group of uh, lay people. And that board of lay people almost always is influenced by the women in the community, that the women are the ones who actually support, and, and I, I didn't see that quite so strong when I was in the Watt in Thailand because it's such a big wat, and some many things happen behind the scenes and whatnot like that. But when I was in the smaller Watts, it was really clear and obvious that the that the people who ran the Wat were the grandmothers of the community. They're the ones who ran it. They're the ones who decided where the parking places were going to be and all that other stuff, where the money goes and everything. But they do it with, by, and through their husbands. And so the women wind up being kind of in the background, but they're still the boss. And so Westerners come and they see this system and this arrangement in Thailand, and they say, chauvinism, chauvinism, oh, there's chauvinism here. Then in fact, uh, there, the, the chauvinism and the whole idea of the chauvinism is a Western mentality. But that kind of chauvinism does exist a bit in Thailand, and it also uh, exists a little in um, uh, the time of the Buddha. So we have these social roles, and also in the time of the Buddha. There were expectations. And so the Buddha was reluctant because you can imagine the, the kind of community, uh, not community, the kind of public uh, outcry and um, uh, complaints, et cetera, like that. If the Buddha allowed the women to go live with the men, the monks in the forest, because in fact, if they did live together, There would be some hanky-panky and that hanky-panky would lead to jealousies and the jealousies would lead to breakups of friendships and relationships and all that kind of stuff. And so because of that, it's really a good thing to separate the men and the women. Well, the question then is, is that where, how do we get the, the thing started for the women? And that was the original issue, how to get things, because with the Buddha, it was really possible or easy to let things get started because they were just a bunch of guys out in the woods. When you add a beautiful woman to the mix, you're going to have making tr- troublemaking with some of the guys and some of them are too old or, or they they don't care or whatever like that. So it's not always a problem, but it's a possible problem. And so women need to be separated from the men in the spiritual practice, which is still the, the the way that it is today. At Wat, So, and Milk, there is a huge section for the women that, in fact, monks and the lay guys and whatnot are supposed to stay out of that place, that that only belongs to the women. But that's also true that the back part of the Wat for the men, the women should not be going back there. Uh, so... Uh, That separation of the sexes is to give people, let us say, uh, a break or um, a, a way out. So coming back then to the time of the Buddha, if the Buddha is going to mix men and women, he's going to have a lot of trouble both within the Sangha and on the outside. And so we have to do it separately. How can we get that going? And it was with Dhamma Dina that, they, that it was able to to get started. That, um, in fact, there was another tradition that was started with that. And that other tradition was how to ask a Buddha or the Buddha for things. Normally, the way that it's done is, is that you have to ask three times on three separate occasions. And this goes back to that time also, that there is a number of things like that. And uh, before we go too deep into it, uh, an example was, is that uh, my good friend Greg wanted to put a particular thing together. So at the end of the retreats at Wat Solan Mok, we could have an additional retreat of uh, Paticca Samuppada and uh, so Greg went and talked to A-chan po and I said, and he says, a Poe says, no. The answer to that is that's not the end of it. You've got to go ask a second time. And so Greg goes and asks a second time. And sure enough, on the second time, A-chan po says, no. And he's really discouraged. And I said, no, you've got to go ask three times. That's the style. And so he goes back a third time to ask Achan Po, expecting Achan to say no, And Achan says yes, this time. Okay, so this is the way that things are handled often. So remember that that don't just because you're refused the first time uh, in starting something doesn't mean that it's over. You can go back and pester them until they say yes. This happens even with Buddhas. So here's Ananda. Wanted to use his family in fact that it, it was uh, part of his family uh uh in fact it was his mother or his surrogate mother who was also ananda's mother who became the first nun or the first bhikkhuni and so when she did that and the buddha ordained her as a a, a bhikkhuni now the bhikkhunis have to have a bhikkhuni for the preceptor as an, as an ordinate because you don't want to have a man. So the way that it happened then was it, it was Buddha's own mother that became the, the first nun. So that means that now we can establish it. And so that was how the nunneries were, were established was because uh, she became uh, his first student. And now she then can ordain other women. And so now the ordination of women generally has it such that you have to have, uh, it's done mostly with women, but it also has to have the approval of the the male sangha, just like the male sangha has to approve of a male being uh, ordained. And so that's not a point of chauvinism that only uh, that in the male ordination that it can be done with only men there. But a women's ordination has to have both the woman as a preceptor and also has to have the permission and the um, opening uh, influence and the participation of male monks. Also, well, one of that's problematic. If you don't have, or if you want to reestablish a bhikkhuni, and that didn't happen in Thailand, that only monks came to Thailand. There were no bhikkhunis who left India and came to live in Thailand. And so the old problem then was, is that how do we ordain women? But in the Thai culture for centuries, it didn't matter because they already could be mechis. They were already the top dogs anyway. It was only with Western mentality that came in with uh, um, what you call feminism. that says, oh, we need equal rights. We need to have women back in the orange robes. Okay. Well, guess what? In Taiwan, Taiwan is a unique place about that because Taiwan not only did have um, nuns, but the nuns outnumber the monks in Taiwan, so I hear seven to one. That for some reason, the Taiwan people, the Chinese in Taiwan, are really into women being ordained and, and part of it. So it was through the, uh, the um, Taiwanese um, group that there was a number of people, including Thai monks, and uh, uh Mechi's that went to taiwan and had the ordination and reestablished the bikuni or established the bikuni system in thailand and this happened in the 1990s so since then there's been no problem they have been growing and growing and growing. There's a huge number of uh, 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 bhikkhunis now living in uh, Ayutthaya. at an old wat there. There was a wat that had like 400 mechis. and that the head abbot female was also a meichi and then they had a male that was nominally the abbot, but after that woman went to Taiwan and became ordained. Now she became the abbot of the monastery that she was already at the abbot of, but now she became formally the abbot. And they still have uh, many, many matis there, but they also have quite well established a uh, bhikkhuni sangha. So the bhikkhuni sangha is established now. It's up to the women. It's not up to the men to give women permission anymore. The women have got it. There's probably more than 100 women now who have been fully ordained both Thai and Western altogether.
3: So I can go and ordain there in Thailand? Pardon? So is it possible to go to Thailand and ordain? Or do I have to go to Taiwan?
1: No, it's possible that you can ordain in several different places. In fact, the closest place that you can ordain is in California. There is a Bakuni nunnery now in California. And the reason for that,
3: (laughs) it's cheaper to go to Thailand.
1: Uh huh. Well, yes, you can come to Thailand. There's many different possibilities for you in Thailand as well. Um, So, uh, Eric, you had a question at one time. You put you flashed a, a, a hand signal up and then you took it down. Do you have a question?
2: Oh, yeah, but you expanded it. It was uh, if mixed race, uh, um, watch or, or if they are always a bad idea. Like, um, let's say, not necessarily in the Eastern context, because you went into that already, that it took that specific form. But let's say uh, in the Western context, we had, for example, all the hippie communities that we know all the all the ways it went all right, but uh, let's say if it's composed by people that are serious, then is it really necessary to like be separated
1: always? Well, you use the word separate, I would say to use the word seclusion, that it really is a good idea to get away from it all. But you don't have to do it in a great big way. Then in fact, you could be riding on the subway in some big city and you're in the world and all you need to do is to close your eyes and take a deep breath. And now you're in seclusion. If you know how to do that. Most don't. That's why we need to get into physical seclusion so that we can get the mind into mental seclusion. But one of the ways to answer your question is, is that in the time of the Buddha, most of the students, most of those who followed him were not monks. They were laymen. They stayed in their household. There's many suttas about that, where at the end of the sutta, uh, the man will say that what was overturned, you have set right. And I take you refuge in you for life as a layman. Many sutras that are like that. So um, a lot of Westerners, they have the idea that the the only way to do the teachings of the Buddha is to become fully ordained. And the, the correct answer to that is ordination is only one of the ways that you can find seclusion and find sangha. That, in fact, a um, uh, full ordination is not going to catch on in the West the way that it has in Thailand over the centuries. Times have changed. People, the, the society doesn't support it. Uh, in the time of the Buddha, going on Pindabat was not only common for the monks, but it was common in the society. In our uh, neighborhood, um let us say in, in the West that Christianity promotes generosity. They promote uh, charity. They promote giving to the poor. Except it's got to now be done in an organized way. You can't go feed the hungry. You've got to go give that food to the church and let the church give it out. Uh, we also we have many laws in the West about vagrancy, no physical support. Well, why is that necessary? Why? why in, in fact, if you look at it like this, why is it that people wind up living in a tent in a city like Los Angeles when they're homeless? Why can't they go find better places to be homeless? That, in fact, why isn't it that 300,000, no, not that many, let's say 30,000 people who are homeless in Los Angeles, why don't they find their way up into the hills uh, in Mendocino County uh, that's within walking distance of uh, Amaravati or, uh, uh, excuse me, Abayagary? Why don't they do that? I don't know, but they, they hang out not in a sangha. They hang out in a misery pit when, in fact, it would be quite capable for them by in masses to go hang out in places that would be around the noble people where they could get some benefit from their being homeless. But most of the people in the time of the Buddha were homeless. The land was owned by the Brahmins. The Brahmins owned all the land. But it was only, um, uh, let us say, when the kings came in uh, and started to break that that system up. But the question is, well, how did the Brahmins get all the land? The answer to that is whenever a landowner died in that kind of religion, the only way to get to pray him into heaven was he had to donate his property to the Brahmins so that they would do the job of praying him into heaven. That's how they wound up with so much property. So homelessness was a common occurrence in the time of the Buddha, and it was quite easy for people then to just drop everything because they had nothing to drop and to go join the Sangha. That's not the case now, even when people aren't quite capable of dropping and going to join the Sangha. They don't have that as an option. They don't even know about it. It's not common knowledge. It's not available to them so the question is is that those who do become interested in the in the 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 buddha uh, or let us say western buddhist are by and large almost exclusively their lay people who have no sangha who have no buddhas, and have only dhamma that comes from a book and that's the bigger problem. What we really need is the entire Triple Gem. We need all three of them. We need to hang around with people who we fully respect. That's why I was hang around with Big Buddha Dasa. That's why I'm willing to hang around with you guys, or to hang out and, you know, just enjoy life. And that also builds Sangha. And so you know that I'm very big on the promotion of sangha, that everybody can come and be friends with one another. Um, that I recommend that uh, the, the the women that are part of uh, my, let us say my friends, should know each other. Uh, then Annie Lou and uh, Anya and uh, Sandra and Debbie and Agnes and uh, others that I've had for women, it would be really marvelous if they were best friends with one another so that they could share the dhamma. That's what we need is we need sangha of friendship, not necessarily particular clothing, hanging out in the woods in a particular place. Or to hang out in the wat with certain uniforms on that this is the, the Western mentality is we get wrapped up in the surface of it. The, uh, uh the visible stuff, rather than looking at the deeper parts of it, which has to do with building relationships, building sangha, building friendship, building support networks, so that we can, can support one another happily, with friendship and with generosity, rather
0: than doing it through the Western mentality of capitalism. So this is the whole point about the Sangha. The the
1: Sangha is uh, the important part that the Buddha and the Dhamma are the uh, preliminary. But if the Dhamma dude who is all booted up and has all of this Dhamma, if he is in fact incapable of dealing and being friends with other people, what's the point? that there is a kind that is, there's a word for it, it's called Paticca Buddha. And the Paticca Buddha is a Buddha that doesn't teach. They call him a silent Buddha, but the the silence is relative. Basically, you can have a good friend, a Dhamma dude, a uh, Paticca Buddha that doesn't teach a lot of Dhamma let us say, sitting on a big rock in front of a group of people once a week. He doesn't do that kind of stuff, but he does have friends. And that's where he shares the Dhamma, just among friends, one-on-one, that that's the way that the Dhamma is really taught. It's always taught in a small group so that people can ask their questions and bring their stuff up so that other people can help them to see it correctly. If you've got a great big group of people at a hundred and one person is sitting and talking, then the people don't have a chance of communicating with each other or cooperating or uh, any of them feeling comfortable in that large group to really let their, their dirty laundry out so that it can be exposed and dealt with in front of a teacher. So large groups is counterproductive. And yet that's exactly how our retreats are set up. They're set up in a way that's almost counterproductive. That the person, when they go to the retreat, before they go to the retreat, they've got no preparation. They don't have an established relationship with the teacher. Then when they go into the the, uh, the retreat, they spend 10 days, In silence, not talking to anyone, just listening occasionally to some Dhamma talk. And then at the end of the retreat, when they go home, they've already paid their fees, they've gotten what they paid for, and their relationship with the teacher now is finished. And now they're on their own with no more instructions than go and practice, is about all the instructions that they get. They don't have that follow on, they don't have that community, they don't have that organization, they don't have that um sharing but in small groups we can do um all the work that needs to be done that a large group can't do now in society and in uh, the west we recognize oh the more the merrier that if we've got a political party but we've only got a few people in the political party we're not going to get anywhere we need millions of people in our political party right which basically brings things down to the lowest common denominator. But here, we're trying to build up. And so we want to have a few good friends that are quite excellent in teaching each other how to be excellent human beings. Eric,
0: go ahead. Eric, you got your hand up. Yeah, that brings up a question.
2: Yeah. Uh, that brings up a question. question that, um, for example, I stayed in touch with the Vipassana group here in Nicaragua. And, uh, do you think that if I apply the investigation and sustain uh, noble thought?
0: So ask a question again? I
2: stayed in touch with the Vipassana group in Nicaragua. Uh-huh. And they organized uh, they organized weekly um, virtual meditations on Wednesdays.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I've had the same teacher, for example, uh, in the three retreats that I had with them. My question is, uh, by keeping in mind the right practice as we've been doing it, is it uh, like is it useful? Is it of benefit to meditate with them once a week and stay in touch, or are is that Goenkā meditation incompatible, or like not worth practicing, not even worth practicing?
1: I would say all yeah,
2: staying in touch with the
1: group. Yes, I would say I'll hand to uh, I would recommend always when people ask that kind of question is, yes, go and be friends with those people. They are, in fact, seeking the Dhamma. They want the Dhamma they want, and probably they don't know that they want it, but they need Sangha. And so you can go with that mentality and spread that idea that this is this is the triple gem. The Sangha is a group of people who are like-minded who can help one another. They can help each other in the Dhamma, okay? So yes, I would highly recommend that, and that uh, making friends with that teacher would be useful also. The more that, in fact, when someone is a teacher, that means they've already spent quite a lot of time and so they care quite a lot. He's probably quite serious about the Dhamma. Maybe you, just with your spark of attitude and whatnot, can turn him out from being serious about the Dhamma to be enthusiastic about the Dhamma instead.
2: Yeah, he's a pretty serious kid.
1: And so yes I highly recommend to make friends wherever they may be found. And thank you. Thank you. Uh, and the the problem with with it could be that if we are in fact associating with the wrong people. If you had asked me instead of going to a meditation um class, if you had asked, "Oh, is it a good idea to go to the bar or is it a good idea to go to the football game?" there to teach dharma the answer is no those people are not there for the dharma no they're i mean the bar is not the right place to teach the dharma i found that out the hard way <laughs> you got kicked out yes that 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 what but people who are going to the meditation retreat they're already hungering and thirsting after The right way of doing things. They're already looking for it, so this is naturally a group of people that you would want to associate with. Not that they're going to be perfect. Not that they live up to even their own standards. That's not the point. The point is, is that we're looking for friends uh, because they can help you as well as you can help them, and it's a mutually uh, uh, benefiting way of living our lives. So I would highly recommend that you are uh, anybody who has a group that meets once a week that you can become a part of.
0: Yeah, I'll do that. You can spread. Your joy. Perfect. So does anybody else have any questions
1: about this? Oh, yes.
2: I have a question, but it's about other another I can't find the suit <laughs> I think it's from anapanasati the origin of conflict when people try to impose views on on oneself like like a lot of people try to impose me the this i don't know how to pull it, but the god view like that there's something higher helping me, and that I should pray and that I should kneel and that I should do things that I'm like, but that's not like that's not my practice. Like how can I handle with that? Like like really trying to impose me something
1: well, um i'm I'm not sure of the kind of pressure that they're putting on you. But always the the way that you can handle that is by asking them questions. Okay. They're telling you to do something or you should do something. They're coming out of the parent ego state. And what you can do is to set a cross transaction with that instead of operating within that world or fighting with them or telling them no or whatever like that. The right way to deal with that is by asking them questions. And the questions that you ask is basically about what they're talking about. So if they say, why don't you pray? Then you can say, well, what benefits do you get out of it? Can you show me how to do it right now? Okay. And those kind of questions, you can actually put put it right to them. What is it that you mean by by praying, is it just wanting something that you don't have and <laughs> expecting God to change his plan to give you what you want? Is that your prayer? I mean, that's the typical kind of prayer. Like they, they go together and um, who has a prayer request? Oh, well, Aunt Susie's in the hospital. Okay, let's everybody pray for Aunt Susie to get her better, right? That's just saying, I want Susie to feel better. Well, if you want Susie to feel better, go to the hospital and cheer her up. <laughs> yeah. There's this old
4: sitcom. You ever, you ever heard of uh, King and Queen?
1: King no. and Queen. Go ahead.
4: Yeah. With Kevin James. Uh, this I remember just this scene where the wife, the, the mother-in-law is in town, and she's watching the, the wife clean, like wiped on the tabletop, and she starts criticizing her, saying, you're doing it incorrectly. Like, you're supposed to do it this way. And the wife starts asking her to show her how to do it. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, I still haven't figured it out yet. Could you please keep showing me how to do it until so the stepmother cleaned the entire house?
1: Yeah, exactly so. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Get them to pray for you. Show me how to do it. What benefits do you get out of it? But you can ask them very, very specific questions. Like, do you want God to change his plan to give you what you want? And and how are you going to feel if God doesn't give you what you want? Okay. Maybe your prayer should be asking God, what what is it that, that God wants? What's natural? Don't you think that God wants you to be happy? then isn't, isn't being happy better than praying for
0: something that you want that you don't have? Have so you asked a- these questions before? Me? People. Have I
1: asked... Have I asked people yeah. like that? Yes. In fact, I've. Uh, <laughs> when I was in North Carolina, it was a whole lot of fun to, to sit around and get people really, really dumbfounded. <laughs> 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 because you just keep asking them questions over and over and over again.
4: What, what do they normally say to that about when you ask, uh, you know, put it that when you put it in that way? Like, are you just asking for something that God doesn't want to do or something like that? That kind of thing. What do they normally
0: say? Do uh, you remember?
4: I,
1: I would say that it ends up in a, generally in a state of confusion. They become mm-hmm. confused, which is exactly what the Socratic Methodist is is about anyway, is to get people to question what they're on about. And a state of confusion means that they're beginning to question This this big, solid, hard rock of you should pray to God every day is a big, solid rock that they've got. And when you started questioning that, now they have to start questioning it too. And always their questions don't get a decent answer. That's why there's confusion.
0: So that's the way, but yes... Anilu, oh, I
3: have a question. Like regarding that, uh, does this call for some kind of discernment? Say when you know the person. Uh, well, some person might get caught into confusion. Another person may have like a what's the word, Like a crisis. So sometimes I feel like I don't know. Sometimes it's people I love, like family, announce, which mm-hmm. I'm ninety percent sure will never drop these ideas. So I decide like, oh, you know what? I can be just friendly. <laughs> and sometimes I ask her like, oh yeah, tell me about that. What does this means like being killed by God's judgment? And I'll just listen like if it was a movie and then I ask her like, oh, and who's that guy, you know? And I keep listening as if I was listening to the radio <laughs> or a movie. And because I feel like I don't want to cause conflict your mind. or crisis. Uh-huh. and i don't want her to convince her and i know i'm not going to be convinced either so some but i don't know like okay. how to discern when it's wholesome to just be a friend and when it's wholesome to to try to <clears throat> uh cause some doubt
1: it, you're you're exactly correct okay so um uh, raul ask a particular kind of question and you're broadening that question So let's go back before we get to the answer to your question. Let's revisit his that he's asking uh, a a question about when they come to him to tell him that he should do what they're doing. And the answer to that is ask them a whole lot of questions about what they're doing, including like how to clean the the house, which is, you know, uh, Keyshawn's point is to get them to do that. You're asking a slightly different question in the sense of when you can see that they are in misery and suffering, what can you do about it? The answer is you can't go and tell them or instruct them. When someone is in that mentality, they're unlikely to hear what's happening But now let's say that perhaps they do. If you start questioning them, like with uh, Rahul, and that Kishan asked, what's the normal response? The normal response actually goes like this. The first thing that happens is confusion. If they continue to investigate within that confusion, they will go into what is now referred to as an existential life crisis. An existential life crisis is when the reality of the situation confronts the reality of what we thought was real. And that being unhappy and miserable is um, uh, then ripe for, with seclusion, excuse me, with uh, confusion, to go into a dark night of the soul, or into an existential life crisis, or the, the question, what's it all about, and who the hell am I, and what's going on here, and those kind of uh, things. So that can happen. Along the way from the confusion into the crisis, your job as a Dhamma dude is to just be cheerful. You don't have to teach them anything. Just merely ask them questions until they start asking you the right kind of questions. And the right kind of questions then will be for you to share the Dhamma. But until they start asking the right kind of questions. Now, this is actually the historical way of it being done. This is part of the reason why the Sangha became and remained secret was because they were waiting for people to ask the right questions at the right time in order to allow them into the Sangha. So that can be overdone. There needs to be kind of a balance between uh, how much do we reach out and become available versus how much do we try to push on them? So... When people are miserable and not asking you questions or not telling you to go do what they're doing while they're miserable. <laughs> which is kind of funny, you know. That's hard for the for the people who are praying to understand that they're praying because they want something. They're praying because they're miserable. If you're not miserable, there's nothing to pray for.
0: But in your case, you're just looking at people who are
1: miserable. And they're not really asking you any questions about it. For that way, you don't have to then come back with a bunch of questions to them, but rather the way of managing it is to just merely get your mojo up, get your cheer up, get your joy up, and then go share that with them. That, hey, they don't have to be miserable. They can just be happy. That's the way that we deal with that, is is that your job only is to cheer them up, not to teach them. Or another way of saying it, in that case, it's time for you to give them a fish, not to teach them how to fish. We don't teach them how to fish until they ask you how to fish, and then you teach them how to fish. But until man, you First give them a fish.
3: There's I learned how to fish.
1: <laughs> Jeff, you got a question. Yes,
5: Dormirato. Um mm-hmm. My question is um, just in terms of, you know, Anna, Anna Lou is talking about, you know, the risk of destabilizing people by asking them questions,
0: mm-hmm. particular
5: questions. Um, so I'm just wondering, how do, how do you approach your teachings if you have a student who is coming from, say, a dry vipassana kind of background and has become destabilized, is in the so-called dark night of the soul, do you change your do you change your the way you teach them in any fashion?
1: Actually, the question that you ask is the same uh, theme or the same question line that Dan Ingram is on. How do you get? Meditation students, deep meditation students, drive apostate meditation students, how do you get them out of the existential life crisis that they create for themselves with their meditation? (laughs) (laughs) And the answer to that is, do they want to come out of that or do they want to drag you in? With Rahul, they're wanting to drag him in. With uh, uh, Annie Lou, they're just miserable. And your question then uh, has to do with, well, what state, what state are they in? Are they just a miserable drive apostate, a meditation practitioner? Or are they wanting you to do what they're doing? Or are they actually um, in a crisis and know that they're in a crisis and want to have some help out of it? In that case, we would still go with asking them a bunch of questions. And in that regard, I would go so far, uh, depending upon the situation, but the statements that you made, we go back to what they say and ask them questions about that. So, dry Vipassana. I have heard of dry Vipassana, but I like juicy better. How about you? Wouldn't you like juicy better than dry? And hear what they have to say about that. And they may go on for five minutes about it. But you can say, well, have you ever tried some juicy? I mean, why should you have your toast without butter? (laughs) (laughs) Why not add some, uh, uh, let us say, uh, some secret sauce? And that secret sauce is the joy. But the joy that we add means that we've got to change the mind out of the unwholesome, dry inspecting of just good old whatever it is that's out there in the mind into putting something in the mind that's worthwhile having in the mind and then watch what the mind is doing with its favorite toy rather than watching it when it's miserably trying to run away from the monsters. So that's the way that you can handle it. Again, it depends upon whether they're co- how they're approaching you and what language that they're saying, but always you can ask them questions. That's the way to go, is to ask them a lot of questions about what they're doing because these questions then will have them to take a look at and see more clearly the very things that you are seeing already. But if you just tell them that, they probably won't like it because it disagrees with something that they've heard before. This is why the old Socratic method of asking questions works so well, and I'm fond of asking students questions. So that's that's it. That's how you
0: handle that: is you 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 uh, you give them joy, and you ask them questions.
1: And when they start asking you questions about the Dhamma, that's when to give them the Dhamma. Is when they're asking questions about it, not when they're trying to get you to do what they're doing. Or when they're bringing their misery to you and on full display. Because when people are bringing their misery on full display, they generally don't want help. They want you to commiserate with them. They want you to join their pity party and to feel bad. That that's the Western mentality of what compassion is, is that when you find somebody in a pity party, you have to join their pity party to make them feel a little bit better because you're easing their burden by taking on two-thirds of their suffering for yourself, that you're suffering so they don't have to. And that's very common, isn't it? to take on somebody else's problem so that because of compassion. The Buddha's way of compassion, though, is with mudita. And that is is to show them very humorously, very happily, they don't really have a problem. That the problem that they made, they made it up. That there really was no problem in the first place. That the real issue is, is that we want things that we don't have. And when we have joy, then there's not a whole lot else that we'd really want. <laughs> so that's the way of handling that, that that this is a common thing. And so when someone, let us say in an existential life crisis brought on by Vipassana meditation um, uh, The the right way to handle them is not to commiserate with them or to, um, let us say, give them a long list of benefits of why they are stuck in the place that they're stuck, but rather ask them questions about it. Bringing in the issue of joy, that why is it that drive Vipassana doesn't do what the Buddha requests, which is to remove those hindrances from the mind and brighten and gladden the mind. But that's the Buddha's method that was actually in the Mahasi, and yet that uh, it seems to have gotten lost. And so uh, there's a whole lot of dark nights of the soul going on around Buddhism. Needlessly. And so you can help them by asking them questions while you're cheering them up. Ha ha, I see that. <laughs> and then you ask them a question about it. So that's the way that we that we can approach that always.
0: Okay, so now we got a little set of rules going here, or, or
1: procedures, let us say, that if they're asking you to do something <clears throat> that you know is not beneficial, you ask them questions about it, and you cheer them up. If they are not asking you any questions, they're just being miserable, then your job is to merely declare, uh, um, to give them a fish, to cheer them up, to... Gain them, uh, get them out of their misery. We can talk about ain't it awful and, and some cute little statements about like that to help them to get over it. But that's the way that we're just trying to give them a fish right now, give them a meal. If they start asking questions, then that's the time to answer. But we don't answer questions or force Dhamma on them if they're not thirsty already for it
0: somehow does that make sense to you huh all right yes thank you thank you so much i i'm sort of
5: um i i'm certainly not in the dark night of the soul i don't have the (laughs) sense i'm in a dark night of the soul but i i was exposed to dry vipassana, and it's i think it's kind of uh, racked up my nervous system i'm pretty taut, so using your methods i'm trying to loosen up
0: Hmm. Yes,
1: um, that if we are prone to being uptight, Vipassana will make us really uptight. If because it's dry, it's going down to the driest desert there is in within your own mind, it will take you right to your desert. That is the dry method. In other words, we're not removing those hindrances. And so those hindrances are just staying there and staying there and staying there. We have to remove those hindrances from the mind to remove the unwholesome thought, to gladden the mind, to bring some joy. Mm -hmm. And when we have joy, now uh, we're practicing
0: already correctly. Because we're getting that entertainment or we're
1: getting that joy not from the outside going and lusting after some entertainment or some hoochie-goochie show or buying some uh, expensive thing in order to get our happiness. No, we found a way of creating that within one's own mind. That even when we're out there trying to gain our entertainment or gaining our happiness through entertainment, we decide to be happy with that entertainment anyway. So all joy is manufactured from within. Joy does not come from the outside. It cannot possibly come from the outside. Anything that comes to you that you see is joyful, someone else will see that same thing is not joyful. So it always has to do with what's going on in your own mind. And so if you can bring joy to your meditation practice, you have brought the most important essential ingredient. And when you bring your joy to the saga, you're bringing the most uh, essential ingredient that the
0: saga needs. is joy, happiness, friendship. And so this is the way that you would
1: deal with your own vipassana, your own dry meditation, is just to lighten it up joyful it up, gladden it up, brighten it up, making the mind fit for work by having it bright and joyful. And then we can do the Vipassana. Now we're, uh, uh, we're going to be taking on objects that are fit for uh, investigation. In the beginning, we were making sure that things were fit Now that they are fit, because we can practice to the point of having one wholesome thought after another, after another. Now what we're going to do the noting of is these wholesome thoughts. Am I able to apply and sustain my mind to the wholesome? Can I keep doing that? Can I keep sustaining it? Can I keep having wholesome? Can I keep my joy going?
0: Can I keep it happy? Can I keep it light? Can I keep it unimportant?
1: And so this is that repetition over and over again to sustain that joy, to sustain that sukha. The Pali word is suka, and this word suka is exactly opposite of the word dukkha. And what is suka? The definition in the in the Pali lexicon is safety, security, comfort and satisfaction. Those are the four aspects of sukkah. So let's get our mind into a state of sukkah. Then we're not practicing dry anymore. Now you're quite juicy, thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, does anybody have anything
1: else? We've been going now about an hour and a half. This is looking good. Anilu, do you you have anything to, to say?
3: Uh, no, not right now, but this was really helpful, especially the part about the fish.
1: <laughs> okay. Tishan, do you have oh, anything to him. add? Uh, uh
4: not, not right now, uh, but if, you, if you're around after this call is over, I got some imaginary problems to bring up to you.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Eric, how about you? Do you have anything? any parting words
2: um, thank you
1: <laughs>
2: I'm quite satisfied with today's talk and I'll be contacting the other med- meditation group, I hope uh, we can build some more friendships
1: excellent, excellent Oh, what about you? you got anything?
2: Um, only stuff to work on to practice
1: <laughs> which is quite nice Thank you, Damarato. Thank you, everyone. Jeff, how about you?
5: Uh, No, nothing else. That was excellent. Thank you so much.
1: Excellent, guys. Well, thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you all. May you all become sangha together. May you contact each other individually and just having a a happy Dhamma talk. Hi, glad to see you.
3: Thank you. Thank
1: you, everyone. That, in, that in, that in fact, on we, we have now a list going on. Uh, it's actually the Sangha because everybody's on it. And I invite you, any thoughts that you have, just bring up Skype and put them out there. If you read what other people have said, then uh, comment. You mean there's a third group now called Sangha? Yeah, the SANGA. Just like this is the SANGA US, we have the SANGA okay. UK. Now, the yes. reason that it's like that is because Skype has limits to the number of people who can join and okay. do uh, the meetings. The SANGA, without a US or a UK on it, has more than 200 people on it, which means we cannot use that one for uh, for video calls. But we can use it as a bulletin board. For everybody. Okay. So that's where we communicate is on the Sangha uh, in um, uh, Skype. Excellent. Thank you. And I, I highly recommend to go and chat and have fun together. That's taking refuge in the Sangha, in the community of friends. Very important at the Wad. More important than I can even describe to you. But once you gain four or five or six or a dozen friends of your own, you'll see that friendship is just so valuable. You can call on other people, discuss things and, and uh, figure things out together and enjoy each other's company mostly. Okay. Well, guys, this has been really great. We'll talk to you later.
0: All right. Thank you,
1: Amadu. Thank, Thank you, everyone. See you. Thank
3: you everyone. Bye, everyone. Have a great day.
1: See you all. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm so happy for each one of you. Thank you so much.
0: Bye. It's just... Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Have a good week. Bye-bye.